HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. The holidays are here, and it's time to head to the Heritage Meat Shop for some juicy Berkshire pork roast, tender Piedmontese steaks, traditional Christmas goose, and duck. Our world-famous charcuterie and fresh meats are guaranteed to please everyone, whether it's a party of two or 200. Be sure to stop by the Heritage Meat Shop to make your holiday celebration a delicious and memorable event. The Heritage Meat Shop is located at 120 Essex Street in the historic Essex Street Market on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Call 212-539-1111 to order now. And welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And we are in the midst of holiday time and the winter season. Although here in the East, winter season, it doesn't feel like the winter season. Um, I, we could use a little bit of snow for the holidays. But when we think of the holidays, what do we, we all think of, of special meals, special foods, and of course, special drinks. There are punches and hot toddies, and any actually today a lot. Another new generation is rediscovering the cocktail, and I when I'm out, I hear a lot of old fashioned drinks, like the old fashioned being ordered, the old fashioned, the Manhattan, the sidecar, the Rob Roy, the B and B, and in these drinks, there's always something that makes them just a little special, whether it's um exotic bitters or a particular liqueur and today we are going to talk about one of those particular liqueurs probably something that many of you have in your liquor cabinet but maybe don't pull out all that often unless you're mixing something special and that particular liqueur I'm talking about is Benedictine and I have with me today uh, the brand ambassador for Benedictine 
the only people who make Benedictine, and that is Martin Duffy. Martin is a former mixologist and, as I say, the current brand ambassador for Benedictine. And Martin joins us from Chicago. Welcome, Martin. Hi, Linda. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Well, who would have ever thought that something that's been around for 500 years and created within the church, no less, would still be used today? Tell I know, 500 years old, and it, yet it's new again. That's right. Well, Martin, there's, there is a little skepticism about the history, but uh, it's a great story. Can you tell us a little bit about, well, first of all, tell us what what is Benedictine? What is it, you know, what, if people have never tasted it before, what is it? Well, Benedictine is, um, is a liqueur that is a mixture of 27 different spices and herbs, um, along with uh, honey and a, uh, a neutral uh, grain spirit uh, made from beetroot, uh, which actually grows wild in the, uh, the areas of uh, Normandy where the, the liqueur is produced. Hmm. And as the story has it, this was produced, as I said, 500 years ago. Um, tell us a little bit about that, about the history. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, technically... Uh, it did start 500 years ago. That's when the, the birth of Benedictine, but the story goes back even further. And when we talk about the evolution of uh, fermented beverages, goes back 10,000 BC in Egypt and China and India. Uh, and then in the Islamic world, uh, around the 7th century, you had the beginning of distillation and the beginning of the alchemists. Um, and that's really where it all begins really is uh, with alchemy um, the uh, in the Islamic world you have these alchemists who are creating perfumes and medicines uh, and the, the wonderful thing about it is that they're actually writing these things down uh, as these books uh, got into Europe uh, the only ones who could really read were the folks in the in the centers of knowledge uh, that was the abbeys Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was the friars and the monks. They began to study this, and these were not only centers of knowledge, but they're also uh, centers of, of uh, medicine. And so, if you're sick, you go to an abbey. Um, it, the Benedictine order was uh, encouraged uh, not only in piety but study. And since they studied, they could read. Uh, they took on uh, alchemy with a fever. Uh, they're always looking for this panacea, this universal medicine, uh, this water of life, uh, which eventually um, resulted in some of the, the wonderful liqueurs we have today. Well, it, it's uh, interesting. Yeah, you say they. I mean, the the abbeys were always their great. Uh, the monks living in the abbeys were always known for being great farmers, for being great grape growers right. and winemakers. Uh, so I guess it stands to reason they would be making medicine. So this initially developed as as a medicine, an elixir for cures. Well, yeah, because most uh, most fighters weren't looking to create you know the next great cocktail. Uh, <laughs> they, were, uh, they were looking. Um, they were using herbs and spices, which, as you're saying, uh, they're farmers, so they they're growing them themselves. They're also located in areas where um, trade was very common, um, and sometimes the abbeys were the centers of trade as well. 
so they had access to uh, new plants and herbs and spices from different parts of the world. Uh, and they're always looking for their rejuvenating abilities. Um, so jettison to 1505, there was a, uh, a friar by the name of Don Bernardo Vincelli. Dom was uh, the name for a Benedictine friar. Uh, in 1505, he was sent to the Abbey of the Camp, which is a town in northwestern Normandy, uh, from um, southern Italy, Monte mm-hmm. Cassino, which was uh, the first community founded by St. Benedict. Um, took him a while to he, get to Normandy. They had to, they had to travel the you know the Crusades and all. They had to travel a little far north to get there. <laughs> yes, yes, it took a while too. Uh, so. Um, now, when he moved to Fakamp, now Fakamp is a uh, is a port town. So once again, availability of spices and herbs. Um, he was known to have created a number of elixirs, but the one that really caught on was what later became known as Benedictine. Uh, in fact, it became the favorite drink of King Francois of France uh, in the early 1500s. Hmm. Um, now, the monks at Fakamp. Uh, produced this spirit for about 300 years until the French Revolution in 1789. Uh-huh. Uh, the French kicked out all the religious orders. Um, the monks had to leave very quickly, and so they had to leave behind uh, a lot of important documents. So they entrusted it to certain people, and one of these people uh, was an ancestor of a gentleman by the name of Alexander Legrand. Uh, some 74 years later, in 1863, Alexander Legrand finds a rescue in the family papers. Uh, now, it, it, was, it was just serendipity that it was Alexander, because Alexander was a wine and spirit merchant. Oh. He knew about distillation. He knew about liqueurs. Um, so it's... It really grabbed his eye when he saw this. Um, he saw this recipe, but now it's written in Latin. He had to decipher it. Plus, um, he also had to figure out measurements as far as the different botanicals uh, were concerned. And so it took him about a year to really perfect the recipe. And I would imagine uh, he that, would have to he would have to find some of these herbs growing, or else you know. Uh, try to track down some seeds and grow them himself, right? I mean, that was right. would not be Either the easiest thing or, to find. Or search the world uh-huh. um, uh, to actually uh, import some of these. And once again, importing something in, this would be 1863, uh, it would still take months for something that, say, come from China. Um, so uh, once he perfected the spirit, uh, he received permission from Rome, from the Benedictine order, to call it Benedictine, in honor of uh, Don Bernardo. Uh, he even used uh, the motto of the of the Benedictine order, D-O-M, which stands for Dio Optimo Maximo, to God, the good, the great. Yeah, uh, you see that on the on the bottle. There's a, yeah, there's a circle there. I'm sorry? I said there's a circle on the bottle, and you see that quite large on, on every bottle right All there, right. that circle. It says yeah, D-O-M. Yeah, very prominent. Yeah. Supposedly, Alexander used that as a toast every time he toasted with Benedictine. Ah. Uh, and it was also a tribute to the friars themselves, since that was not only their motto, but 
that's what you refer to a friar as, as, as a dom. That's right. We have dom, dom, um, we have dom Perignon as well, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. Right. Well, uh, then he was too he was a, a, monk. A, a friar. That's right. Um, now, uh, then he, uh, Alexander Legrand was so happy with the spirit, and the spirit really took off uh, within within a year or two. Uh, it was already being exported to the United States. He was selling thousands of cases. Um, so he built a palace in Sakem that you can still visit today um, in honor of the liqueur. Well, now, was it's, the, it's an amazing place. Was the, is this on the grounds of the original abbey? Was the original abbey, did they destroy the, the original abbey completely? They didn't destroy it. Uh, there's chunks of it that were destroyed, and oddly enough, during the French Revolution, they wanted to, uh, one of the things that you still notice at the Abbey, the Abbey's still standing, they, they still hold mass at the Abbey, um, but the statues all have their heads cut off. Mm-hmm. Typical, which, uh, typical war crimes. Yeah. France. yeah, they're, they're a, little, uh, a little heavy into uh, cutting off the heads yeah. back then, yeah, yeah. so, um, so, so statues were not spared. So uh, uh, Legrand built a, a palace in that in Facamp in the same region, right? A short walk actually from the actual abbey, um, and there's a lot of tie-in between the two. In fact, the coat of arms of the Benedictine palace is the same coat of arms as the abbey it has four abbot hats or three abbot hats hmm. on the on the crest. Uh, now he he finished the palace in 1888, but. Unfortunately, uh, two disgruntled um, individuals who were uh, turned away for employment there uh, burned it down in 1892. Ooh. So he had to, he had to, it was really a shame, too. Yeah. He was so happy with it. It was just finished. So he had to um, rebuild it, and he rebuilt it even grander. Well, I, I uh, have seen... Gothic style. Yeah, I've seen pictures of, uh, well, I'm only the outside, I haven't seen pictures of the inside, but it, I mean, it truly is... is a ca- like a castle. I mean, it is just, it is a oh, palace yeah. indeed. It's its quite impressive. It has, it has spires and gables and um, gargoyles. Um, it's really amazing. Um, and is really the beautiful. is the liqueur manufactured and produced on site at the castle? It is. It the is. palace. Yeah. Uh, so you, you can go through a museum. Uh, they have a number of, uh, of wonderful eclectic uh, religious articles, uh, odd middle evil, uh, a medieval collection of locks, um, straight and keys, very odd, uh, but also famous paintings, uh, even some modern ones, Andy Warhol, uh, Dolly. Huh. Uh, they're all represented there. Uh, I guess they all. I guess they all. Eclectic place. They all liked Benedictine, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's. And then the, uh, Another interesting little part of the museum is they also have a counterfeit museum. So is the, uh, you'll see on the wall, all the, the, the different liqueurs that have tried to pass themselves off as Benedictine over the century. Well, I guess that's flattery, trying to imitate, uh, imitate the recipe. So often imitated, exactly. but never, never reproduced, huh? It's never duplicated. Duplicated. That's right, right. Yeah, because right. The, the recipe is um, 
is a secret. Uh, the exact recipe is only known by any just three persons. Oh yeah, at any tell, given time. tell me about that. There's there. I've I've heard that that there's a this sacred sect that only three people at a time know the exact recipe. Yeah, well, because especially because of all the counterfeiting that uh, took place, especially in the early part of the uh, of the twentieth century, uh, they had to limit the, the the people who actually knew the exact recipe. And even to this day, it's very difficult to find out uh, even all twenty seven botanicals huh. that go into it, or how they divvy it up when they do produce it. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I want to talk about these botanicals. I want to talk about the exact, some of the tastes that are in there, and we'll talk about what we can do with Benedictine. Okay? So well, stay tuned. Feeding a flock near to the Kissing o'er them, they fell a kissing, kissing a kissing, kissing o'er them, they fell a kissing. We are back, and I'm talking with Martin Duffy about Benedictine, the history, the use, the taste. And, you know, I read somewhere, Martin, that Benedictine is. Uh, has well, it has quite a huge audience. We know with uh, bartenders and and home mixologists alike. But there is a club in the United Kingdom in Lancashire called the Burnley Miners Club. I've heard that they are the world's largest single consumer of Benedictine. Did you? I mean, I, I don't know where I came across that. Yeah. But <laughs> I've heard about that. I've never missed it, but that's why I've heard it. Yeah, uh, which is uh, which is pretty amazing. We're hoping to create something very similar right here in the United States. Ah, well, I guess they they supposedly acquired a taste for it um, during world or during the First World War, and it was something that that just sort of stuck with them. But tell, so when we taste Benedictine, tell me you talk about all these herbs that are in it, herbs and spices, and what. What's the predominant flavor of someone who's never tasted Benedictine and they take a little sip? What Describe that for us. Well, I think one of the first things you'll notice is uh, a real tingle of cinnamon on the tongue. Uh, and then, of course, the honey. And it's, a, it's an amazing contrast to just the creamy smoothness of the honey uh, and then this, this uh, spicy tingle of, uh, of cinnamon. Uh, clove is definitely on the back of the throat. As you breathe out, you really pick up the clove. Um, also, you'll pick up things such as, uh, you'll notice thyme, um, the uh, and cardamom. These are uh, the most prominent ones, uh-huh. but there's also citrus. You pick up uh, a, uh, a definite uh, citrus note because uh, one of the things they do use is... Uh, is uh, lemon rind. Uh-huh. So you do get a lemon zest coming through, which 
which I think is one of the reasons why uh, so many mixologists um, go to it. it as a uh, it's a bartender's friend because there are so many different avenues you can take when creating a cocktail with it. You can build off the citrus, you can build off the cinnamon, you can build off of the uh, the clove. Uh, it complements so many other spirits, such as whiskey. Uh, so it's a natural, say, an old-fashioned, or even a Manhattan. Oh, you would using, use all uh, those. Uh-huh. Now, oh, I know, yeah. uh, I mean, the only drink that I ever really knew, uh, not being a, a big cocktail drinker, but, um, and growing up, you know, listening to my parents talk about the cocktails they would drink, and a and b I knew that Benedictine was in a and b um, and that's mm-hmm. Benedictine and brandy, right? Right, which is interesting because the... Uh, the uh, B and B, the brandy and Benedictine, um, started. Uh, well, no one's quite sure when it did start. Uh, uh, I know that there's writings uh, talking about it was one of Hemingway's favorite cocktails back in the twenties. However, it didn't really get uh, big attention until the Twenty One Club made it famous. The bartenders were uh, really big into blending. Benedictine with brandy, huh. and around this was about 1937, and it's what inspired the Benedictine uh, uh, folks in France to bottle their own version. Uh, but it's it's a so it's a a, like a pre like it's a not, pre- uh, it is not a bottled cocktail. It is a liqueur. It's a liqueur. B and B, the actual Benedictine and, and brandy is is comes in a bottle. B and B, and it's a yes, yeah, interesting. And, and it's, currently, it's a similar bottle, but they are going to be changing up because so many people get confused between the two. And oddly enough, too, Benedictine, uh, or uh, B&B is not necessarily Benedictine and brandy, I guess technically it is, but they actually use a cognac, uh, a Baron Otard cognac from the cognac region as opposed to just a plain brandy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, well, what would you... Other than this B and B, and you and you said sometimes in an old fashioned, um, what kind of drinks have you have you ever created a drink with it, or what kind of drinks would you use Benedictine in other than sipping it on its own? Well, I, you know, especially you were talking about the holiday season and just the cold weather that we experience. I'm currently in Chicago, um, and you feel the, the the chill getting into your bones. So I think of hot drinks. Uh, and very simple, and yet very, very tasty cocktails. Uh, it's something, uh, take green tea, for instance. Very simple, Benedictine and green tea. Oh, so well, one, we can, one we can be healthy and high at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really gorgeous together. They really complement uh, one another, uh, and it really warms the cockles. Mm. Um, if, uh, if you're into hot chocolate, and who isn't? Mm-hmm. Um, a little Benedictine and hot chocolate. Uh, maybe even around uh, Halloween, you could uh, pull out the apple cider, heat it up, put so, in Benedictine. So what? And ba- a so basically, Marty, what I'm hearing is anything goes, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, just about. It does complement. Uh, and once again, I think it, it goes towards the compl- uh, complexity of the spirit. That it does go so well with so many different, um, so many different mixers. Um, a, a very simple cocktail, uh, and it's kind of a take on the old classic Tom Collins. But instead of using gin, use Benedictine. 
along wow. with uh, along along with lemon juice and um, and soda. And now you have a down Collins. Huh. You know, it's interesting because the a lot of the bartenders, there are a lot of, of mixologists out there who are um, they really are experimenting with bringing more herbs and spices and and you know. And, really strong flavors into uh, certain cocktails and creating their own. And I think that uh, certainly this is nothing new. And it dates yeah. back, as you said, way back to, to the 16th century. So uh, they just sort of reviving an old, the old alchemy that was taking place at that time. Well, well they really are, yeah. And certainly this is something for those who aren't familiar with it to uh, to experiment with. And, and I always, always said it was a bottle that sat there in the back of my liquor cabinet, but I, you know, I never really pulled it out because I wasn't quite sure what to do with it. But now I have some new ideas. And certainly when mixing punches or cocktails, holiday season or any time, actually, I, I'm, I'm going to be a little more experimental. But mostly I was really intrigued by the history. Um, yes, I do like the taste, but I'm, of course, always intrigued intrigued by by the history of someone creating creating a medicine that then becomes a very popular liqueur and i think that that's that's pretty neat so i thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge with us and have a wonderful holiday season again thank, thank you. you linda this happy, has been happy holidays thank you this is linda palaccio you've been listening to a taste of the past On December 17th, Typhoon Sendong dropped over 180 millimeters of rain in less than 24 hours and caused severe flash flooding to the northern Mindanao region of the Philippines. The cities of Iligan and Cagayan de Oro City were hit the worst, and the area has suffered severe damage and human loss. 654 people have been claimed dead, hundreds more are missing, and nearly 100,000 Filipinos have been displaced after the floodwaters destroyed everything in its path during the late hours of the night. The city's power and water supplies were shut down for nearly 24 hours, and many Filipinos need your help. Xavier University is accepting donations to help those in need. Please visit www.sendongrelief.org for more information. That's www.sendongrelief.org. Dong Relief dot org.